And so for our sermon text today, we're in Genesis chapter 22 and we're looking basically at verses 1 to 19. Genesis 22 verses 1 to 19. Before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, your people, seek now to worship you as we hear from your holy scriptures. We pray, Father, that you indeed would speak to us both in the reading of the scriptures and in the teaching that comes from that reading. Father, give me words to speak that are according to the wisdom of God. Let me not speak according to the foolishness of men nor the doctrines of devils. Father, may we be given hearts that are humble and receptive and ready to receive that which you have given to us through your word. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 22, as I said, verses 1 to 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took, he, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Amen. May God bless his word to us. I've got to say, as a preacher, you approach a chapter like Genesis 22 with a little bit of fear because um, this is pretty much the high point of the book of Genesis. This is... um, and incredible, an incredibly important portion of Scripture that's in front of us today. It's so often referred to in the Scriptures. It's referred to in the New Testament. When you, when you start to study and prepare yourself to preach here, you honestly, or I'll say I honestly came under the conviction, I'm not up to it. <laughs> I'm really not quite up to this. This is, um, this is beyond me. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training up the man of God. But some parts of Scripture just um, there's so much light there that it's almost impossible to um, bring it out clearly. 
Think of um, what we see by way of types. Now, now, what's a type? A type is something that you would find in the Old Testament that points to a fulfilment in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, the fulfilment, the technical term is the antitype. So the type here is Abraham's offering up of Isaac and the antitype is the Lord Jesus himself being offered up on the cross of Calvary according to the will of God the Father. Think of Isaac carrying the wood. And then if your mind is not automatically drawn to the fact that, well, Jesus carried wood. Remember, he carried the crossbeam of his own cross. He carried the wood to his own sacrifice. And then in Hebrews 11, we're told that it may as well have been that Isaac did actually die because so total was Abraham's surrender that when Abraham got Isaac back, it was as though he had received him back from the dead. In other words, the resurrection is prefigured here in by way of a type. The passage itself concentrates mainly on Abraham. You might think that perhaps the victim, Isaac, would be the most important person in the passage, but actually it concentrates mainly on Abraham. There's this constant repetition of Abraham's name. After these things, let's, let's try and sort of move forward through it. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God tested. God tested Abraham. I want you to think about that. There's, there's this sort of pernicious doctrine that goes through churches. And I know, look, you'll, you'll have never heard it taught by me, but you will hear it from time to time. If you're faithful, if you're good, If you do what's required of you, everything will go well. Life will be just one constant stream of rejoicing and joy. You know, we'll go to heaven walking along a pathway strewn with rose petals. You know, whether you want to call it prosperity preaching or whatever you might want to call it. Name it and claim it, all of that. Abraham's not being tested here because he's a wicked sinner whom God does not love. That's not what's happening. Abraham's being tested here because he is God's chosen representative. Remember, God said to Abraham, walk before me and be righteous. God loves Abraham. In the scriptures, God calls Abraham his friend. God actually reveals his future plans to Abraham. Abraham, the friend of God. But it's always remember this. It's a condescending friendship. God is God and Abraham is a man. God is the creator. Abraham is one of God's creations. God may deal with his creations in any way he so desires. Now, people often make the accusation that in this time of testing, God lied to Abraham. That God all along, knowing that he didn't want Isaac to be slaughtered, must therefore have lied to Abraham in giving Abraham the command to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. Well, first of all, people who make those kind of accusations, well, a verse of scripture describes them perfectly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They don't want to know the truth and they want to accuse God. They want to tear down God in his holiness and in his righteousness. God has the right to demand of us whatsoever he desires. We have nothing from our children to our possessions, to our spouses, to our very lives, to the very next breath that we take. We have nothing that God has not given us. We have it because God gave it to us. And God has the right at any time to ask us to truly, from the heart, lay that thing at his feet. And it's no secret, God gave Abraham Isaac miraculously. Remember, Sarah was way past the age of conceiving. Abraham himself was as good as dead, the scripture says. Yet, Sarah conceived. Isaac was born, the son of the promise. Let's read on. 
Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, we need to stop there and just remember something. Remember, there was an Ishmael. He did have a son, not the son of the promise, not the son that could be said to have come to him directly from the hand of God. He had a son who had come to him from Hagar, the slave girl. Remember Abraham and Sarah, they had this bright idea. We don't seem to be having any kids. Maybe, maybe, maybe a child from a slave girl is the way that we're going to inherit the earth and be a blessing to all the nations. And so along came Ishmael. But when Isaac was born and when Isaac was weaned, Sarah said to Abraham, send him away. Send him away. He's not inheriting along with Isaac. And we read that Abraham was very displeased. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So imagine that. Abraham's lived, let's say, a hundred years, round figures. He's lived a hundred years. He had no children. Then he had two children. He had Ishmael. He had Isaac. And then God said, No, you don't have two children. Ishmael I I disown, therefore you disown. Okay? Ishmael is not of the promise. Ishmael is not of my beloved elect. Send him away. Exactly as Sarah has spoken to you, she has spoken to you by my prompting. Send him away. You will have only one son. You will have Isaac. So imagine, in obedience, he does send away Ishmael. And in obedience, he does care for and love his son Isaac. How much would a man love that son Isaac in those circumstances? Um, Lisa, my wife, works in preschools. She's a preschool teacher. And one of the things that she will often tell me is, you know, those people who wait 40 years before they have children, you know, they're in their 40s and they've had a career and they've got money and they've got nice cars and big houses and all that stuff. They've made themselves quite wealthy. And then in the 40s, they decide it's time to fill their lives by having a child. They usually are pretty hopeless, soft-handed parents and they spoil the child rotten and they think that that child is the most special, wonderful little darling that has ever set foot upon the face of the earth. Now, I admit they're not Abraham. I admit those people are not Abraham, blessed by God and made God's representative upon the earth and blessed by the Spirit of God. But just imagine... Abraham got this son at 100 years of age, miraculously by the power of God, according to the promises of God, which he had been hearing for about 30 years. How much would he love this son? This only son. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. See, God puts stress on it. God himself. You know, God knows exactly what he's doing and exactly what he's saying. And he knows the heart of Abraham. Take your, only, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And it's, it's just an interesting little thought here, but um, it's, it's felt that this is probably happening somewhere very near to the place where Jesus himself was put upon the cross. We know that Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. This is Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So all of this is happening. I, I won't say it's exactly the same hill. I'm not saying that Mount Moriah later on certainly became Golgotha, the place of the skull. I'm not saying that we know that 100% for certain, but it's probably within like a one or two kilometre radius. This is happening there, basically right outside what would be the gates of the temple. 
Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, this is actually, in a way, the high point of the life of Abraham as a believing man. The verses that follow are basically stressing to us his instant total obedience. We're not told that he argued back. You know, there was, there was no, you sure you want Isaac? Maybe I could go off into the desert and find Ishmael and we could, we, you know, we could work something out. <laughs> you know, there was none of that attempted negotiation here. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. It appears that he even cut firewood himself. You know, often in scripture, when, when a master tells his servant to do something and the servant does as the master is, has commanded, um, it's counted that the master himself has done it. But the way the sentence is put together, it really appears that it was Abraham himself who went out and collected this wood and cut and split this wood. He's taking this seriously. He's taking this personally. He doesn't know exactly where the Lord is sending him and he knows that if it's to be a burnt offering, we need a fire, a good hot fire. We need plenty of fuel. And so he went and cut the wood personally. And you'd have to ask yourself, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? I mean, you've got this son. You know that all the promises are coming to you through the son that God has given you. I mean, God had made it very clear through Isaac, shall your descendants be named. And now God says, I want Isaac for a burnt offering, which means that you cut his throat, you bleed him dry, and then you burn him. (laughs) Verse four, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Think of what's being said. First of all, notice on the third day, we keep talking about, I've mentioned the idea of a type. Something happened on the third day in Jerusalem a fair while after this, didn't it? One and a half thousand years or so after this. On the third day, he rose from the grave. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Notice he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I'm going over there to offer my son as a burnt sacrifice. Even Now, I doubt that he's told the young men that God has demanded Isaac as a sacrifice. I doubt that he's let them in on that much of God's word. But he then says, and we'll be coming back. You know, the faith of Abraham. Somehow or other, I will do as God has commanded me and we will come back. We will come back. Abraham is basically trusting that somehow or other, through this ordeal, God's promises will be fulfilled through Isaac, even the Isaac, that very same young man, Because why do I say young men? Well, the burden that had to be carried on a donkey, we're going to see that that burden is now carried by Isaac. If if the burden had to be carried by a donkey and it can now be carried up a mountainside by Isaac, he's not six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. He's more like 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old with, with the strength of manhood, the ability to carry this burden. And Abraham took the wood, verse 6, of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. (laughs) I just, this is, you know, a father and a son walking alone up a mountain with all that they need to make a burnt offering. And the father knows that God has said that the burnt offering will be your only son whom you love. 
it's 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 got to be one of the toughest points in Abraham's life. But notice the obedience. It's also the high point of his walk of faith. Now I just want to I just want to make a point here and the point here is idolatry. Let's just think of what idolatry is. Idolatry is basically setting anything in the place of God or setting anything before God. Idolatry is loving anything in the way that you should only love God. Would it be possible for Abraham to make an idol of his son, Isaac, given the circumstances, the only son whom he loves, the son whom God has given him miraculously in his old age? Consider the heart of man. Consider how easy it is to love something too much. You know, idols don't have to be made of stone or gold. An idol can be a person. I mean, don't we use the phrase? I mean, it's sort of not really used these days, but it was very popular not so long ago. A teen idol. What's a teen idol? A teen idol is some kind of uh, musical performer, usually a pop star, that uh, the girls scream about and worship and have photos of them, etc., etc., etc. The teen idol. They make a god of a person. If Abraham was at risk of idolatry, well, what God is doing here is basically putting that to death. He's purifying his love. I'll tell you something about the way that God often deals with us. The way that God often deals with us. Often you have to let go of the things that you love in order that God can give them back to you sanctified. In order that God can return them to you sanctified. It's, it's very easy in our lives to, to say, you know, what's the song? Take my silver and my gold. There's a chorus that we sing. I can't remember all the words, etc., etc. And And basically, verse by verse, this song is a person saying, God can have everything that I have. God can take it all. Well, it's very easy to say it and it's very easy to sing it. But sometimes you've got to actually do it. Sometimes you've got to actually let go. Sometimes you've got to actually surrender something truly and completely to God. And God might give it back to you. But if he gives it back to you from that time on, your love for that thing will have been sanctified. Sorry, my my grandson just took a little tumble. (laughs) He'll give it back to you sanctified. Your love for it is actually purified. If, If, and it's possible... If Abraham was developing something of a worldly, idolatrous love for this son, well, this is the surgery. This is the correction. This is the hard medicine that's needed in order to um, purify the heart of Abraham. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? This tells us something. I'm going to think carefully, but what does it tell us? That Abraham had been instructing Isaac in the way to worship the one and only living God. Isaac understood that we offer lambs. When you make a burnt offering, something is dying in our place. Abraham had been instructing his own child in the worship of the living God. It's an example for us to follow. We are to instruct the children that God gives us. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Faith speaks. Faith speaks. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham knows his God. Abraham knows Yahweh whom he worships. Abraham knows his God. God has not demanded the sacrifice of a human life before. I would guess 
Possibly Abraham also knows his son and though he beloved, though he loves his son and though he might well be on the verge of, of committing idolatry in his love for his son, yet he knows that the blood of his son will not save the people of God. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place, verse 9, of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, there's two kinds of faith, my friends. There's probably more than two kinds, but here and illustrated for us are two kinds of faith. There's the faith that actively obeys and there's the faith that submits to the will of God. Abraham in this part, at this point is the one who is actively obeying. Abraham builds the altar. Abraham lays the wood in order. Abraham binds Isaac. Just remember, Isaac is strong enough to carry the burden of wood up the mountain. Abraham is over 100 years old. If Isaac wanted to run, I doubt that Abraham would have caught him. If Isaac wanted to fight back, I doubt that Abraham could have restrained him. If Isaac wanted to rebel at this moment, Abraham could not have stopped him. Isaac is also exercising faith at this moment. He is submitting. Not my will, but your will be done. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. There is active faith and there is faith that submits. I remember reading one author. He said there is faith that gets you out from under the burden and there is faith that bears the burden. Both come from God. Laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife, took the knife to slaughter his son. He was going to do this. He was going to go through with this. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that he received him back from the dead. Abraham was committed to this. This is what God commanded. This is what I will do. He was as good as dead at that moment. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and your heart should just be going, yes. That's what we wanted to hear. If ever we wanted to hear God intervene at any time, we wanted to hear God intervene at this very moment. If ever you wanted something to be stopped in its tracks, you wanted it to stop right now. Abraham, Abraham, repeating his name. I love you, Abraham. I'm speaking to you, Abraham. Hear me, Abraham. It's kind of, you know, actually Lisa said something to me this morning. She used my full name. It was affectionate, don't worry, but she used my full name, middle name and all. It actually meant she wanted me to listen. She had a reason for speaking in that way. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. (laughs) Here I am. Could you imagine? You know, the adrenaline, the, 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 the feeling of relief. God is about to intervene here. Here I am. I'm here. Please, God, speak now. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, think carefully about how you understand these words. Um, you know, there's a thing called um, open theology, where basically the idea is that God doesn't really know what's going to happen in the future and he's just responding to things as they come along. It's a heresy. It's a lie. God knows. God knew. God always knew that he had built Abraham up to this point that Abraham was now going to obey him. That's not what it's saying. This is reassurance for Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Basically, God is saying to Abraham, The testing, 
is over. You have been tested. You have been proven in the fire. You have been found to be true. And what God wants Abraham to know is that God himself knows it. This is words of reassurance. This is words of encouragement. Now I know that you fear God. That little phrase, fear God. Now I know that you fear God. Imagine. First of all, fear God. What would it mean? Well, it would literally and simply mean you fear God. You know, I mean, people talk about Jesus appearing at their left-hand shoulder whilst they're having a shave in the morning. If Jesus appears at my left-hand shoulder while I'm having a shave in the morning, I'm likely to cut my throat from trembling. Okay, I'm likely to fall to the ground with the razor in my hand. The first response to the presence of God would be the fear of God. If every time an angel appeared to a person, a holy angel, a created being appeared to a person, the first thing that an angel had to say was, fear not, for I bring you good news, etc. If that's what an angel has to say, how much more so if God himself comes into our presence? I'm not saying that the Lord Jesus wouldn't lay his hand upon us. I'm not saying that he wouldn't encourage us. I'm not saying that he wouldn't tell his own servants that they are beloved. But I'm saying that our first instinctive reaction to the very presence of God would be that we fear God with an awesome reverential fear. An awestruck, I should say, reverential fear. That's what would happen the very instant we were in the very presence of God. And by the way, just a little bit, that's the way it should be every time we worship here as the gathered people of God because he is in the midst. We are the temple of the living God. Worshipping God is no small deal. It's no petty thing. It's not routine in what I say when when I say it's not routine. I mean, it's just not um, it's not the least important part of our lives. Now, I know that you fear God. Well, there's layers of meaning to this, isn't there? Now, I know that you fear God. Everything that Abraham has, he's willing to lay, as it were, at the feet of God. Everything, including Isaac, his only son, whom he loved. Faith gives back to God. Faith surrenders to God. God may well give us things, and he does. And if we are faithful, we return them to get them back sanctified. Everything that we have comes from God. Everything that we have still belongs to God. We're caretakers. And it is for us to give it back to God, according to the scriptures. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. See the emphasis again? Remember God, when he gave the command, said, sacrifice your son, your only son. And now God acknowledges that Abraham was willing to give up his son, his only son. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And so those words that Abraham said at verse eight, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. They're fulfilled. He was speaking according to the prompting of the spirit of God. John 8:56 reads, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You see, I think at this very moment, in seeing the ram, he understood something. God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the atonement. God will provide the redemption. God will accomplish salvation. He saw the day of Jesus from afar off. And it made him glad. 
Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Important word, instead of his son. Instead of his son. Okay, there's something that's being made very clear to us here that's important. If you are reading through and you're reading through the law and the commandments concerning the sacrifices of animals, what's happening? The animal is being put to death instead of people. The animal is being accepted as a substitute for people who are sinners. And the animal's not responsible. And the animal didn't commit the sins. But the animal is being offered up instead of people. And this is pointing forward. What did John the Baptist say in the Gospel of John when he saw the Lord Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God, without spot or blemish. He's basically saying, you see that man there? He's righteous, he's holy, he's perfect, and his blood is going to spill. He's righteous, he's holy, he's perfect, and he is the promised salvation. It's one of those um, mysteries of the gospel. The only one who could pay the price for sin was one against whom no sin could be charged. The reason that he's the acceptable offering is that he is not a sinner. He's positively righteous in the sight of God. His life was the perfect fulfillment of the commandments of God. I couldn't pay for my own sins, let alone yours. If I were slaughtered a thousand times, my blood would not supply my own salvation. What does God want with the blood of a sinner? What does God want with the heart of a sinner? Of what value is a sinner in the presence of God? But the blood of a righteous man, the blood of the true Adam, the blood of the Son of God, holy, righteous, spotless, without fault, without blemish, never sinned in word or thought or deed, that blood can buy back sinners from under the burden of death. Remembering that death is the wages of sin. The substitute was provided and Abraham saw Jesus' day from afar. He saw it and was glad. He rejoiced. There is life for mankind. There is life for humanity. This blessing that goes out to all the nations. I wonder if at that moment he understood that Jesus would be called, among many things, a son of Abraham. Son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. How are all the nations blessed? How are all the nations blessed? Well, my friends, we're blessed because we see a ram caught in a thicket, a lamb without spot or blemish. Our sin, our sin holds him there. Yet God the Father puts him upon a cross. God the Father sends him to his execution. For you and I, and for Abraham, and for Isaac, and for all the faithful. No one comes to God but through the Son. No one knows the Father but through Jesus. And oh yes, the knowledge was vague. You know, if we had have walked up to Abraham at this moment and said, Isn't the Lord Jesus Christ wonderful? Abraham would have said, I've never met that man. Who are you talking about? And why did you call him Lord, Saviour, Messiah? I'm not saying he knew his name. I'm not saying that he knew he would be called Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Mary, son of David. But I'm saying that he knew that God would provide a ram who could wash away sins, who could give life eternal. Though we die, yet shall we live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That ram, that saviour, that spotless lamb 
So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Think of how often that's misused. The Lord will provide, people say. What are they talking about? Well, often they're talking about money. I need money. The Lord will provide. That's not why Abraham called him Yahweh will provide. (laughs) Is it? What's he talking about? Yahweh will provide salvation. Yahweh will provide eternal life. Yahweh will provide the needed sacrifice. That's what he's talking about. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord. Just turn quickly in your Bibles to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, it's a promise of the new covenant blessings for the church, that church which is born through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm reading here, I've got, I've got my electronic version open at the Lexham Standard Bible, so we'll use that one. Now, it will, be, it will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and will render decisions for mighty distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them tremble. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. In that day, declares Yahweh, I will assemble the lame and gather the banished, even those upon whom I have brought calamity. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a mighty nation. And Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. The Mount of the Lord. Micah looks forward and sees the Mount of the Lord where it has been provided, where the people of God are called in to the presence of God. The lame, the powerless, those who have been banished, even those upon whom the Lord has brought calamity, the whole wide world called into the worship of God upon the mountain of the Lord where it was provided, the place from which the word and the law, the preaching of the truth goes forth from the mountain of the Lord. It's not necessarily a physical mountain, although the sacrifice of Jesus upon the mountain outside of the temple is certainly somewhere close. It's the place where the people of God gather in the presence of God, worshipping God, and then they go out from that place with God's word upon their lips, the law and the word, the law and the gospel, preaching the truth to the kingdoms that more might be called in. On the mountain of the Lord, says Abraham, it shall be provided. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, sorry, verse 15 of Genesis chapter 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The same promises repeated again, but this time, basically, the Lord is saying to Abraham, all of these promises, they are most certainly yours. I have most certainly appointed these things to you. You can know this for certain and for sure. This cannot and this will not be changed. Just remember, as we think of this amazing thing that Abraham did in that he was willing to offer his son, his only son whom he loved. Why would he do that work? Well, he would do that work because the spirit of God was prompting him to do that work. 
It was God who enabled him to obey. No one obeys other than by the power of God's Holy Spirit. No one is made faithful other than by the power of God's Holy Spirit. No one is able to do the things that God commands unless God enables us to do them. What are we apart from God? What are we apart from the Lord Jesus? The flesh profits nothing. That's what the Lord Jesus said. In other words, we can do no good thing apart from him and apart from his power and apart from God's Holy Spirit. And so the promises are given again to Abraham. And it says there, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Remember the Lord Jesus saying something about the gates of hell? On this rock I will build my church and against it the gates of hell shall not prevail. My friends, we're the church. We're not the church universal. What I'm saying is we, as the people of God, gathered in the name of Jesus, we are of the church. And against us, the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not prevail. We have nothing to fear. That, by the way, includes death and dishonour in this present world. We have nothing to fear. If they kill us, what does that mean? We're immediately in the presence of our Saviour. We're there with the Lord Jesus. They cannot interfere with the Saviour's love. They cannot break the Saviour's life that has been planted within us. If the worst thing that could possibly happen is death, well, the Apostle Paul said, death has no sting. (laughs) Death has no sting. Now, none of us has been tested to death, but who knows if the day comes or does not come. But the, the, the history of the church is filled with people who went to death singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. People facing flames without fear. We shall possess the gates of our enemies. It means we rule their cities. We're the people of God, my friends, and God has provided. And it can't be taken away from us. We, we are privileged. And all the nations are to be blessed in our faithful obedience. We're a blessing to the nations. You know, before the church started to change human society, you wouldn't, want to, you wouldn't want to have lived anywhere. You wouldn't want to have lived in societies where unwanted baby girls were dumped on street corners or thrown into, into the local rubbish dumps. You wouldn't want to have lived in places where the power of life and death was held by despotic lords and rulers over their petty little kingdoms. And they could kill people just upon a whim. And when you look around the world today and you think that there are some countries in the world where, you know, it might be okay to live there. You know, people have rights there. People get to vote there. The law is upheld in these places. Well, my friends, when you look at the world in that way and you look at the map of the world and work that out, I'm telling you all of those places, they may not now be consciously Christian. But the only reason that they're like that is that once upon a time, they were. The idea of universal education and health care for anyone who needed it. The idea of caring for even the weakest in society, though they can contribute nothing, yet you care for them and you love them and you treat them like people. Those ideas went forth with the gospel. No pagan heathen society has or has ever had anything like it. All right, you can't run a decent society basically with the attitude that bad stuff happens as long as it doesn't happen to me. In that kind of society, you have cutthroat life. You have to protect everything, lock everything up, lock your family up. You have to build walls. You have to have weapons. And if you don't have the power to do that in that kind of society, you're the constant victim. Pushed from pillar to post, bullied, ordered around, you suffer the consequences. You can't run a society on that idea. 
bad stuff happens just as long as it doesn't happen to me. You can run a society on do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Can't you? You can run a society on the idea that the one who sheds the blood of man, by man should his blood be shed. In other words, justice. But you need the reason why from Genesis chapter 9. What's the reason why? Because in the image of God, God created man. You can run a society with true, good laws, which are in accordance with the word of God. But you can't run a society apart from it, not a decent society. I mean, you can have a nation, you can conquer other nations. If you've got the power in those nations, you can do pretty much whatsoever you please. But we're a blessing to the world. We're a blessing to the world. It always, um, it always interests me when I hear atheist, atheist historians actually say so. And they say things like, look, the only thing that changed Europe was Christianity. Before Christianity, unwanted babies were eaten, men ran around naked, painted themselves blue and killed each other. And the only thing that's changing the nations in the world around about us is Christianity. The only thing that truly has the power to affect change is the gospel the power of God's Holy Spirit. The only way that we'll possess the gates of our enemies is through the preaching of the gospel by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So we go forward in the assurance that it has been provided, that death has lost its sting and that the gospel will not be denied. The Lord Jesus Christ will build his church and against it the gates of hell will not prevail. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you our thanks and our praise that indeed it has been provided. The Lord Jesus himself, your eternally begotten son, took upon himself flesh and lived in your sight a perfectly pleasing and righteous life. And he died in your sight a perfectly pleasing and righteous death and paid the price of sin for sinners like us. We thank you and we praise you. May our hearts be filled with your praise and rejoicing in your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Father, may the gospel be upon our lips. May we be emboldened. Indeed, Father, may we take hold of that promise that against the church, against the gospel, the gates of hell shall not prevail. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.